I still remember what my daughter was wearing. She was like 30 days old and she's got a little onesie on. And my ex-wife's wearing like these yellow pajama pants and a white T-shirt. And we only lived like three blocks away from each other. So she walked. She was, I had to walk. I watched her walk away. And I still remember like it was yesterday, man. And I just remember dropping to my knees and going, God, I have, you know, I could not feel more disgusting and despicable in that moment. And I was like, you know, please, I, I get it. I, I help me, help me. Right. But at this point now I've relapsed. Um, and I, my pink cloud is gone. Hey there, Recovery Nation. Producer John here. In today's episode of Full Potential Now, Ted discusses the short, middle, and long-term stages of recovery with Omar Pinto, host of the Share podcast and founder of the recovery life coaching community, ShareSpace. For more information about Omar and his work, please visit thesharepodcast.com. That's S-H-A-I-R, thesharepodcast.com. Let's get right into the conversation where Ted and Omar talk about living a life full of passion, purpose, and connection in recovery. Don't go anywhere. Well, I am here with the absolutely amazing Omar Pinto, who uh, is the podcast host of the Share Podcast. And we are really blessed and lucky to have him on the show today. So we're hoping to learn a lot from him. But why don't we start out with our big first question, um, Omar, which is tell us a little bit about yourself. Absolutely. Thanks, Ted. It's an honor to be here. Uh, Pleasure to share my experience, strength, and hope with your listeners. Um, You know, today is pretty awesome, right? Like my daily routine, I'm very blessed. I work at uh, Costa Rica Recovery. It's a drug treatment center here that's been thriving for 11 years and has helped countless numbers of addicts uh, find sobriety um, and uh, get a life, you know, which is the most important thing. Um, and so I've, I've recently come on board uh, to Costa Rica Recovery, and I'm also very honored and privileged to have uh, the Share podcast that I have been hosting now for over two years. February was two years, so we're talking two and a half years now that I've been and over 100, close to 135 episodes uh, to date. And so today, my life revolves around recovery. And I know we're going to cover this later as far as, you know, how you integrate, you know, your normal daily routine and then add recovery into the mix. Uh, Fortunately for me, I'm able to pretty much be involved all the time. I have a thriving Facebook community that's also associated with Facebook, I mean, with the Share Podcast. So a lot of times what will happen is, is I'll invite people uh, that are listening to the podcast to join us in the Facebook group, which is free, obviously. There's over 3,000. And the topics are always revolving around recovery, um, not necessarily uh, AANA, that kind of a thing, 12-stepping. It's more of just a community where you discuss recovery, people that have no idea how to find recovery, have that preconceived notion of what recovery is all about. Uh, We try and introduce them, right, by those of us that have very solid, strong foundations of recovery. Uh, So it kind of keeps it green for all of us because we're constantly having conversations with people who are like, yeah, I went to my first meeting. I didn't really jive with the people there. Um, Or, you know, I'm having a tough time communicating with my sponsor. Or I'm going to a birthday party and, you know, I've only got like a month and I'm worried that I'm going to drink. These are the kind of conversations that come up, and then you have, you know, 15, 20 members 
that come in behind them to support them and say, hey, listen, here's what you should do. Uh, stay close to the group. PM me if you need me, that kind of a thing. Um, and that's basically what my day looks like. It's me going to work in recovery, then you know, producing the podcast, interviewing people, and you know, participating in the, in the, in the private group. Um, and the rest of my time is spent with my family. You know, I try and keep a healthy work-life balance where, you know, with my, I spend time with my wife and my daughter, uh, my mom, that kind of a thing. Uh, and with friends, you know, you have to keep that, that healthy balance as much as possible. Um, and that's basically, oh, and I have a, a solid morning routine. I get up in the morning, I pray, I meditate. Uh, I'll either do a little bit of yoga or I'll do like a quick 20, quick 20 minute workout. Um, and I do that every single day. Um, before I go to work, right? On the weekends, I might like take it easy a little bit on the workout, but I find that if I don't start my day off with, you know, some quiet time, a moment to reflect and connect with my higher power, you know, the day just doesn't start the same. So I hope that answers mm. your question. Yeah, it totally answers my question. The thing I was, I'm curious about is so like with this Facebook that you're, you know, that you've opened up, so that would be available to not just somebody who's like knows about recovery or has gone through treatment, but somebody who might be new to recovery and they might not be able to even want to be able to go to that first meeting, but they could maybe possibly go to this community and get a taste of what a recovery community is. That's exactly what it does. Um, and not only that, I have like, for example, I get emails from moms, right, that uh, their kids are suffering uh, most of the time, it, it, the heroin epidemic is, is brutal. You know, it starts with Oxycontin and then it deviates into heroin. Um, and so I have a lot of moms that send me emails and they love listening to the podcasts because through listening to other people's stories and their experiences, it helps them understand a little bit more about what their child is going through. So they'll e email me. I'll typically invite them to get, to join the, the Facebook group. So I have moms in there. I have people that have codependent issues. So people that are in CODA, people that are in Al-Anon. It's a recovery-based uh, society or community. It's a community uh, based around recovery and any type of recovery. So if you're brand new, if you don't know anything about it, if you would like just to kind of stick your toe in, right? If you're concerned that, you know, people are going to know in your community that you're going to a meeting, and you don't want that to happen, but you're, you're, you're desperate basically, you know, you're, or you're in need of connection. And you know, what I find more and more and more is that just simply by connecting, it changes the trajectory of these people's lives immensely. Their ability to connect changes the dynamic of where they're at, because in many cases you're alone. You don't know where to go. You don't know what to turn and you, you don't trust anybody in your local community. And this feels like a safe place because I'm online, right? And, and if you don't connect, it's very difficult, if not impossible, to truly find your way through recovery or find recovery. Hmm. So what a great resource out there for our listeners. And then also I checked out several of your podcasts, Omar, and just phenomenal interviews, really inspiring. I mean, and you don't really hold anything back in these interviews. No. I mean, it's pretty, pretty raw and real. And, <laughs> and that's the kind of stuff I think that really resonates, that can really help people along. So I appreciate your, uh, your, your continuing to stay in the podcast business, no doubt.
Yeah, all my podcasts are labeled explicit for the most part because there's uh, nothing's off the topic. <laughs> nothing's <laughs> nothing's off topic. You can't. There's nothing. There's nothing that you can't talk about. You know. And I don't know about your show, but we drop f bombs all yes, the time. <laughs> totally fine. Totally fine. If one slips out, it's totally fine. But was it always that great? You know, the kind of rags-to-riches story. The person just faces their addiction head-on and gets into rehab and lives a sober life, happily ever after. Or is there another side to the story, maybe a bit more painful, of what it actually takes to stay sober? Well, well, what about, um, tell us a little bit about like your journey from addiction to recovery and then maybe even kind of leading up to the podcast and what that was like for you. You know, I, I, I was one of those people just like the, the people in, uh, and, in, in like the people that have the opportunities now to find communities on Facebook. I didn't have those opportunities. Um, there was definitely much more of a stigma uh, when I got clean, at least in my own mind, I guess. Uh, I, I certainly didn't see myself as an addict or an alcoholic for many, many years. So that was, I guess that's what kept me out there for so long. Um, I, I would consider myself just a regular guy that drank heavy for many years. Uh, I was a blackout drinker um, and, you know, things like getting arrested, getting a DUI, um, having to go to DUI school, having to go to AA meetings, you know, uh, having those kind of consequences. Um, kind of forced me to take a look at, at uh, my drinking. And so what I would do is I would just take hiatuses. I would take a month off, three months. When I got arrested, got my first UI, I was off for six months. And so for me, it wasn't the fact that I could stop meant that I, I wasn't an alcoholic, right? And that I was just a heavy drinker. That's how I would categorize myself. My family on my dad's side, heavy, heavy drinkers, my uncle's. Um, whenever we got together for family uh, events, it was just a drink fest, uh, and everyone would drink to excess. Uh, there wasn't really too many people that were on the drinking side that could actually drive home after the parties. Many cases, you know, you'd wake up and it was like a frat house at my uncle's house. Everybody sleeping in sleeping bags or on the couch, right? Because nobody could drive home, and. Never once in my life did I ever think that, wow, that, that, that's excessive drinking, right? Like that's, yeah. that's what my family does. That's what we do. Uh, and it an- sounds like you even had like this, which is an interesting, I, I call it like profile. And, and I've ran in just in, in being on the other side of it as a counselor is this ability to stop and start at times, which in, in my experience, and I really want you to kind of come back on me with this in terms of your opinion. But in my experience, the people that are able to stop and start, it almost lures you in more and more to thinking, oh, I, can, I have a handle on this. Now I can go back. Absolutely. Absolutely. That's exactly, that's exactly what it is. And I think that um, just the fact that you're raised in a, in a, in a certain environment and under certain conditions I think for anyone, I think any person is just going to automatically assume that this is the way life is. This is absolutely normal, whatever the circumstances. I mean, if you grew up and your dad is banging, you know, heroin 
every day in front of you. You know, you grow up thinking, well, you know, when I'm older, I'll probably be bagging dope. Right. I think to I yes. think it, that we're all victims of our environment. The difference being that you get to a certain age. Right. And for some people that become drug addicts or alcoholics and for other people, it it uh, it plays itself out. Right. After a while, you're like, oof. OK, those were the college years. Right. And, yeah. and you know, it's time for me to, to you know, shift gears and get a job and, you know, finish school and that kind of a thing. Um, and, and, and for some of us, you know, uh, we just keep taking it to another level and taking it to another level, which is what happened to me. So then as life went on, um, I would pay these consequences, right? Fights in bars, wake up not knowing what happened the night before, calling up my friend saying, dude, hey, what happened last night? Fuck off, oh, don't call me, you know, that kind of a thing. And so um, I, I would take hiatuses. This is where I was telling you I would take drinking hiatuses when the consequences would be bad enough. Um, and then eventually my friends would be like, ah, oh, you know, come on, let's go get some drinks. Oh, you remember what happened last time? Oh, that was last time. I'm sure it'll be fine this time. Nobody knew, right? My friends didn't know. I didn't know. I mean, who, how do you know who's an alcoholic and who's not? Right. Yes. Yes. And so, um, this was me. I mean, when I was in high school, um, I didn't start drinking until I was in my late teens. And once I discovered it, I was off to the races and I just transformed I just became a different person. Alcohol was the solution to everything, to my inability to communicate with people, to feel popular, to be popular, uh, to interact, to be funny, uh, to pick up girls. Uh, so that was at the tail end of high school. College was one of the best years of my life. Drank and partied like a rock star. Never finished school. That was not the, prior- that was not the priority, nor really the agenda or the motive for being there. <laughs> it was to party and pick up girls. <laughs> so I spent five years in college, uh, never finished, started working when I uh, left college, moved to L.A. I was living in San Luis Obispo for many years, Central Coast of California, moved down back to L.A., started working. And then, you know, it was those weekend warrior type stuff. I started smoking weed when I was 19, absolutely loved it. Um, so that was introduced into the mix. So whenever there was weed, whenever there was booze, I was doing one or both. And uh, that's what I accepted. I, I figured for the rest of my life, this is how my life is going to be. And I'm totally cool with it. And there's no way I'm going to a wedding or a party or an event or a business function and not drink. Right. Yeah. I have to, I have to drink. So you're kind of saturated in it. And then is there a progression that happens? Yes, yes. I've heard about the proverbial rock bottoms. You know how addiction progresses and takes over and destroys people's lives and all those around them. But I also have heard with addiction, sometimes your life doesn't actually necessarily spin out of control or get worse. It actually gets better. You know, there is a thing called a functional alcoholic, or in the cocaine world, a high-functioning cocaine addict. With a decreased need for sleep, a feeling of euphoria and invincibility, maybe one could rise through the ranks and be ultra-successful, at least temporarily. So the progression happens when I moved to Costa Rica. So at the age of 29, I moved to Costa Rica... Uh, not knowing that I'm an alcoholic or a drug addict. 
and the I, I opened up an online casino and sports book. I, I met someone when I was in the States. I used to be a mortgage broker. While being a mortgage broker, I met a guy uh, who was opening up a casino and sports book in Costa Rica. I wasn't married, didn't own a house, didn't have a lot of things holding me down. He says, how about you open up an online casino with us in Costa Rica? You can run the, th- you can run the thing. I go, I don't know anything about online casinos or sports betting or anything like that. Like, I don't know. He goes, we don't need you to know that. You can hire those people. We need you for operations. And I'm like, oh, I can do operations. So I talked to some of my friends. They're like, dude, Costa Rica. Yeah, do it, do it. I mean, worst case scenario, you get a free trip, three months, all expenses paid, everything got paid. The, the whole, my apartment, my salary, right? I got a piece of the company. I mean, you can't beat you, it. I mean, like, look at it. You could not say the, no. <laughs> it's almost like, how could you not say? So I jump no. on a plane. I leave my business because I was a mortgage broker back in L.A. I had my partner. I left him in charge of the business. <clears throat> Went down there. And so the first week I get off the plane, I meet my future wife. The day, actually, I got off the plane. Uh, I uh, also that week was introduced to cocaine for the first time. And so what happened was I was told, when you get down there, you got to fit in. And so um, in my mind, it was like, okay, I, at this point, I knew how to fit in. I knew how to socialize. I got that covered. But I wasn't expecting that. And so um, my first week in Costa Rica, uh, I have my first date with my future wife. And also at the same time, I go, I'm hanging out with the guys that are teaching me the ropes on how to open up my online casino. And the reason why I got to fit in is because they provide me with the software providers. They provide me with all the connections, how to hire people, you know, how to, how to, how to do the operation, how to advertise. And so these guys are all partying like 24 seven. They have these huge bars in their offices. They're like, like mini gangsters or they think they are. And so all they I'm do, imagining like a like I, for some reason the movie Scarface has like come to my mind. I would as, have, <laughs> yeah, not so much Scarface, <laughs> right? Um, because it's it was more fun than the Scarface, yeah. yeah. Kind of thing more jovial. I would say probably more like the movie Blow, you know, Whoa. where he's kind of like haphazardly figuring things out, but he's having fun along the way with his with his yeah. buddies and they're you know charting planes but he's got his friends and they're in mexico right yeah that's that's basically it right so i'm you know so i'm sitting there i'm about to pass out on the on the counter and the guy's like hey we're gonna go to the casino i'm like okay guys i'll catch you tomorrow i'm going to bed and they're like no 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 you're coming with us we're going to the casino i go dude seriously i'm about to pass out i drank way too much i'm wasted they're like oh not a problem and they break out this plate of blow and i'm staring at this thing 28, 29 years old, and I've never been in this situation in my life. And I'm like, I got to fit in. I got to fit in. And I hit that cocaine, and it changed my life in that. That was one of those defining moments that changed my life forever. I am just, I woke up in in an instant. I was awake, alert, alive, and I'm going, oh, my God. This is better than any drink, any weed, any of it. I could have finished college on this. Oh my God, this stuff is brilliant. 
And boom, I'm like, let's go, guys. Off to the casino, out till 4 or 5 o'clock in the morning. And now I'm like hitting and going to the bathroom with these guys. I, div- I discover a whole new world of bathroom partying that I never knew existed. Now I knew why everybody was like, oh, I got to go to the bathroom again real fast. And then they come back. <laughs> yeah, and so that was me. And so I get introduced to these guys and it starts. And from that moment on, I went from a guy that ran his own business, showed up to work every, every day on time, only partied on the weekends, only smoked weed on, on the weekends, only drank on, on social occasions, wasn't a daily drinker, to a guy that instantly went to smoking pot every single day, drinking booze every single day. And if we were going out, there was no way I wasn't going to be partaking in the cocaine. It was instant. And uh, because it was at the beginning of the thing, I was able to manage having a new relationship. I just met the woman I was going to marry. We start dating. We're hanging out. So, But she was still living at her parents' house, so she'd have to be home by midnight. As soon as she took off to go home, I'd call my buddies to find out where they were at. Boom. I'd hang out with them till 4 o'clock in the morning, head into the office at 10, do a couple of bumps before I walked into the office, and then handled my day. And that I did pretty much for the first year that I was in Costa Rica. Wow. Yes. So you're like a total, you're using every day, drinking, and you're like functioning. I am completely function, I tr- functioning. I attributed my success, uh, everything that was happening. The, I, you know, we launched the casino. Things were working. Things weren't working, but I managed to take care of things, right? I'm hiring people. I'm able to maintain this relationship with, with my now fiance. I'm able to manage my life. Nightlife partying, and I'm able to do a complete night at work and communicate with the investors. And I'm like, dude, no wonder this is what the guys on Wall Street do. No wonder, right? They need this cocaine to function. That's why there's such high achievers and high functioning, you know, business guys and success. It's a secret world of the cocaine community, right? And yeah. they've, been, they've no. been keeping it hidden from me all these years. And now, all of a sudden, I am now in the inner sanctum, in the private secret circle of the hyper-successful people that have managed to grow successful businesses, all on cocaine. That was my thinking. It was just absolute insanity. And so about a year into it is when shit starts to unravel. The cocaine stops working. See, for those of you that are listening who've never tried cocaine before... The cocaine hits your dopamine reactor or, or neuroreceptors the first time you hit it, and you think you're Jesus Christ, all right? And then as time progresses, you start to deteriorate those dopamine uh, neuroreceptors. They start to break down. You need more and more, right? And so for a while, you do more and more, and okay, great, it still starts to work. But then you start to get to a point where you no longer can carry a conversation, where you, 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 you're that guy and you're chewing your shoulder, all right? And you're hiding in the closet, you know, afraid that the ninjas are going to attack at any moment, right? And so things start to change. The dynamic starts to change, right? Now you can't go into a place and pretend like there's nothing wrong. Now you're the only guy in a room that is sweating profusely, right? And, and has a hard time carrying a conversation that doesn't revolve around the same topic over and over and over and over and over again, right? Until that person finds a way to escape from you, 
right? And so as the thing starts to progress, I obviously am in denial about it, but the people around me are like, hey, you know, I think O's got a problem, right? Like there's something desperately wrong. And then towards the end there is like I went into a drug-induced psychosis, completely delusional, uh, totally paranoid the whole time. I no longer could function. Business tanked, went into the toilet. Partners came down on me, wanted to know what's going on. I'm a complete disaster. I, there's no way for me to function on any sort of a level. I'm using on levels that are inhumane. Um, and so now every, all the guys that I was partying with are the one, same guys going, dude, I think O needs to go to rehab or something because he is a complete disaster. Like, my nickname soon became Onomar, right? So when guys oh. would see me, they would be like, oh, no, right? And so that, that, was my, that was my nickname. Other guys had nicknames, Sleazy, Excited Guy, Yo-Yo Baby, Uncle Bicky, stuff like that, crazy, stupid names. And I became Onomar. I became the worst of the worst. Like, if you could compare yourself to somebody who had a bad drug problem, they go, well, at least I'm not as bad as O, right? And I, and I surpassed all of them on these levels. They fi- my fi- I finally, finally hit rock bottom and, uh, you know, felt like I was going to overdose. It was one of those nights where you just thought, you know, oh, my God, I think, I think I'm going to die. I think I'm going to die. My heart won't stop beating. I'm sweating like a pig. I'm downing Valiums and Tylenol PMs and drinking whiskey and smoking weed. And I'm trying to come down off of this. Uh, obviously, I could have had a heart attack at any moment. I'm basically trying to induce a speedball. And, and I'm, I'm just, I'm out of my mind. And I, and I just got on my knees and I was like, God, if who you, I don't know who you are, or what you are, if you're there, if you're listening, but just take me out of this world, man, because I'm just, my wife at this, I'm married at this point. She thought I was going to get clean and sober when we got married. That didn't happen. She got pregnant three months after we got married, figured, you know, if she got pregnant, I'd stop. That didn't happen. I'm at my all-time worst, um, and I knew that I had a baby on the way in the next three months, and I cannot stop using. So I was like, if I just fucking check out, then... She can move on with her life, and I don't have to be a part of this of 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 my daughter's of my daughter's future, right? So I prayed for death. Uh, I woke up the next morning, and I just remembered that ten months prior to that, I'd been to a therapist, and he'd said, "If he goes, I can't help you. I mean, you can come here and see me, but you're an addict, and the only thing that I have seen with people like you that have are uh, addicts like you are." Uh, is going to NA meetings, going to Narcotics Anonymous. And I'm like, Narcotics Anonymous, that's for addicts. I just have a problem with cocaine, right? And for me, a drug addict was somebody who injected heroin. For me, I had this image in my mind, and this is how fucked up the disease is, is that you create your own world, you create your own reality, all right, based on what you think it is. So crackheads and IV users were drug addicts. I was just a guy who had a little bit of a problem with cocaine, okay, and alcohol and weed and some pills, right? So it's always like this rationalization. It's kind of similar. There's always going to be some sort of story that separates you out from being that alcoholic or that addict. Correct. 
Correct. And I remember when I woke up, I remember him saying that to me and us having that exchange and him saying to me, uh, you know, you should go to a Narcotics Anonymous meeting. And I got out of bed, put on my clothes, didn't eat, didn't call anybody, didn't think about it, got in my car, drove to the therapist's office, and I said, I need help. I need help. Um, I've relapsed. And you know, I didn't even say the word relapse, you know, because that's a term I didn't even know yet because I hadn't been to a meeting. I'd been to one meeting in my entire life, and I thought it was horseshit. You know, um, so I went and I said, I need to find those meetings. I need to go to those meetings. And he goes, I'm glad you're back. And he wrote me a little map. And it just so happened that I got there an hour before the meeting started. Right. So for me, like if, you know, we're talking higher power, um, God was there all the time. God was always there trying to get me to see the light. And at that moment I did, I remember what the doctor said, got to the doctor's office asked him to go to a meeting, and he gave me directions to a meeting that started in an hour. And I'm here in Costa Rica where there was only one English-speaking meeting per day at that time. I wasn't in mm-hmm. L.A., right, where I could have gone to a meeting any hour. I show up to that meeting, you know, and uh, introduce myself. I said, you know, I'm an addict and I need help. And these guys just, they, they surrounded me, man. They gave me a phone list. They shared their experience, strength, and hope with me. I identified with every single one of those guys. And for the first time in a very long time, I felt hope. You know, and that, and that, that really, that's one, of, that's one of my bottoms, right? I wasn't done yet, but that was, that was my main bottom. That's when I knew. Um, and after that meeting, I knew that that's where I was going to be returning to. So why do people relapse, even after they go through residential or outpatient treatment for substance abuse? It's quite a compelling question when we think about what works and what doesn't, or what leads to relapse and what doesn't. According to the Yale Journal of Biology and Medicine in 2015, there are basically five rules of recovery. Number one, change your life, creating a new sober life with different components in it and redefine fun in a sober life. Your fun isn't going to stay the same. It can't. But by redefining it, you can have fun again. Number two, be honest and face your fears. Be open to new sober experiences. Meeting new people. Having those new experiences to establish a new life. Three, ask for help and be connected to people. This is really the cornerstone of having a long and fun recovery. Number four, practice self-care. Be good to yourself. Have good life-work balance. Have fun. Have excitement. Have downtime. Sleep well. All these ingredients go into having a good sober life. Number five, don't bend the rules. Having that one last dance with that substance of choice or even after a long period of sobriety, begin to make deals with yourself on maybe I could go back and just have one. So if there are only five rules and I follow them, why do the majority of substance abusers relapse their first try? Maybe it's not as easy as it looks. Mm, You just kind of knew that. So there's like this... It's almost like you were being sort of like led eventually to getting to this moment where you're willing to kind of at that point reach out 
and get help and you happen to be received at that time. And then what happens after that in terms of how you begin to build your strength? And I know oftentimes people will talk about, you know, they, they hit that first proverbial rock bottom and then they make it to the meeting and then go back to using. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know if that's your story, but I've heard that story a lot. Go back to using um, to then eventually find the the path that's gonna they're ultimately gonna take. Well, I mean, like I said, that was my first bottom bottom where I, you know I I prayed for death, um, and and I went there and I went to the meetings and I immediately stopped everything. So, you know, for the, also the the listeners, um, that was another miracle that I didn't recognize as a miracle. But I was a guy that could not stop at all for any amount of time unless I was out cold sleeping. And all of a sudden, that that was my first 24 hours where I didn't smoke weed, drink booze, do coke, take pills, nothing. I went an entire 24 days without using and showed up to the meeting the next day. And those guys were there at that meeting waiting for me. And I go, oh, my God. Like, I did it. I made it 24 hours. I didn't use anything. And all I had to do was just, like, I knew I was going to be at the meeting the next day and I didn't want to show up wasted. So, mm. so I got there and then, uh, I asked someone to sponsor me and I got a phone list and I started using the phone list. And then I got, I just jumped in with both feet. I grabbed the basic text. I started underlying it. I did, uh, you know, my sponsor gave me assignments. I did them. It was a night and day transformation. But you know, the problem is that you start feeling so good that, you know, you don't realize that what you really have is this ego, right? The ego is what ultimately drives the boat for you for many years. That's what keeps you out there using. That's what keeps you from listening to anybody. That's what keeps you from changing or growing or evolving. The ego tells you, you don't need any of that. You don't need those people. We just need more drugs. And so, mm -hmm. and so there I was, I dove in with both feet and, uh, because I felt like I was doing so great that all of a sudden I didn't really need to listen to these guys because I wasn't sure if they knew what they were doing, right? And as I read the literature, I've, you know, I discovered some quicker ways to work through the steps, you know, a faster way to get through the book and the literature. And uh, I was willing to help the guys at the meetings if they had time after the meetings to sit down with me so I can explain to them, you know, a better way to work through the steps. And these guys are just sitting in the room laughing at me like, oh, boy, this guy's on his way out, right? The ego's mm, kicked in. They knew. They knew. All yeah. of a sudden, I want to be the CEO of NA and, you know, just rewrite the literature and, you know, make some – it's like craziness. Like I see that now today and I go, let me tell you a little bit about my story, right, which is what's so important about having a story. Anyway, yeah. um, because because – I started doing things my way. I once again separated myself from these guys who were helping me. And um, what happened was uh, my wife at the time, right, was starting to see somebody else. We were separated uh, and I'm working on me and she's working on getting over me. And I find out she's seeing somebody and I don't have any coping skills. I don't have any, I have nothing. Right. I didn't know what to do. I'm riding this pink cloud, not knowing, you know, that 
life on life's terms was just around the corner. And because I was so full of shit and, you know, driving the boat in the recovery, um, I didn't feel comfortable asking somebody for help because I'd already kind of detached myself from these guys. Um, so I just went to meetings, didn't share about it, and just hoped that it was going to go away. And uh, I got angrier, and I got more frustrated, and ultimately it took me back out. It took me back out because I didn't talk about it. And once I picked up a drink again, I'd managed to get five months, five months clean, real clean and sober. And I picked up, and it was on. I was off to the races. I started drinking, and halfway through my drink, I was driving to the Connect, pick up a bag of dope, and I was in a bag of dope, snorting cocaine, drinking alcohol, you know, picking up some weed, all within an hour, right? Mm. And uh, yeah, and I was off to the races. And so what happened was, because I'd gotten some time clean, my daughter was already born. My daughter was about a month old at that time. And uh, my, my ex-wife shows up in, at the door and rings the doorbell at 9 o'clock in the morning, and I'm trapped in my apartment, right, like paranoid, wondering what the heck's going on. And I look out, peek out the window, and I see her standing outside with my daughter in her arms. And I was like, oh, my God. Oh, man. I, I did it. I did it. And I'm like, I go to the intercom. Hey, what are you doing here? I haven't seen you in like four days. What's going on? What are you doing? You all right? I'm like, oh, I'm fine. I'm just busy. Oh, you're busy. Mm. And she's like, all right, click. So she knew. Oh, yeah. So she, she goes upstairs, peeks. I peek out the window, and I just see her kind of walking away, and she's her head's nodding. And I still remember what my daughter was wearing. She was like 30 days old, and she's got a little onesie on. And my ex-wife's wearing like these yellow pajama pants and a white T-shirt. And we only lived like three blocks away from each other. So she walked. She was, I had to walk. I watched her walk away. And I still remember like it was yesterday, man. And I just remember dropping to my knees and going, God, I have, you know, I could not feel more disgusting and despicable in that moment. And I was like, you know, please, I, I get it. I, I help me, help me. Right. But at this point now I've relapsed. Um, and I, my pink cloud is gone and I'm just having a tough time reconnecting with the group. I cannot, I cannot reconnect with the group. So I'm going to meetings begrudgingly, uh, meeting with my sponsor begrudgingly, hating every minute of it, right? And for the next two months, I am relapsing and going back into the meetings and relapsing and going back into the meetings and relapsing and I'm just, I'm lost. But I knew one thing. I knew that I had to figure out how to get back into the meetings. I mm. knew that. There was something inside of me that never let go of the idea that at some point I was going to have to surrender and get back into meetings and get back into doing the step work. And when we talk about relapsing, we have to talk about different types of relapsing. There's the emotional relapse, the mental relapse, and the actual physical relapse, according to the National Institute of Health. Emotional relapse is characterized by bottling up your emotions, you stop going to meetings, 
or you still go to meetings, but you stop speaking up for yourself. You become more focused than other people, and you might engage in poor eating and sleeping habits. The mental relapse, on the other hand, is characterized more by increased cravings for drugs and alcohol, thinking about those old using places, things, and people you used to hang out with, minimizing the consequences and romanticizing about those old use experiences. You might even think of schemes to go back to using and controlling it one last time. And then ultimately it leads to the physical relapse, which is the actual relapse. That one person or experience can make all the difference in the world if you're ready for it. So often some will say they are, but they're really not totally ready. They may still need to have that one last rodeo, that one last hurrah, that one last meetup with their drug of choice. You see, change happens on a continuum. Some are obviously in denial of their addiction. Some are maybe moving a little bit closer to understanding it with one foot in and one foot out. And some are ready for recovery. Then of course, we have to cross the bridge of even if we do decide to change, how do we maintain that change? And uh, you know, I'd lost my momentum. And so there I was trying to figure this thing out. And like I was telling you, I knew that I had to go to meetings. That I knew. Even when I was out using, right, I knew, well, I got to stop at some point because I got to get to the noon meeting tomorrow, right? Like it was that, it was the, it was amazing how, how my brain was working, but how connected I was spiritually because, you know, my higher power just, he knew I wanted to change. My heart, my heart hadn't changed. I still wanted to get clean for my daughter, um, but I was stuck in the obsession of the mind, right? The self-centered fear was crushing me. The disease had its arms, its, its, its knuckles and its fist around my neck. It wasn't letting go. Um, and then a guy moved down to Costa Rica, brand new, never met before, walks into a meeting for the first time, shares his story. And I walked up to the guy after the meeting. I said, would you sponsor me? And he says, yeah, man, I'll sponsor you. I'm brand new here. I don't have a job. I could use a sponsee. He says, do you have a sponsor now? I go, yeah. He goes, well, first, before I take you on, you got to fire your first sponsor. Number two, are you willing to go to any length? I said, yeah, I'm willing to go to any length. He goes, do you know what that means? I said, no. And he says, are you willing to let God into your life? And I said, mm. I'm willing to let anything into my life, dude. I'm desperate, and I think you can help me. So he says, all right, I'll take you on, but I'm going to give you some suggestions that you have to follow or I'm not going to sponsor you. So they're not really suggestions, but they're suggestions. <laughs> you know how we are, man. Nobody, we don't like the words rules, you know, or structure or anything like that. We like the word suggestions, but he's like, here's some suggestions you need to take or I'm not going to sponsor you. And 90 meetings in 90 days. Uh, I know you're dirty, so you got to pick up another white chip. Uh, you're going to meet with me once a week. You're going to start working steps immediately. Uh, and uh, make sure you have the literature, people, places, and things gone. And you got to pray every day in the morning and pray every day at night. And I was like, yeah, 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 man. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and I did it. I did everything that man told me to do uh, as as... As angry as I was at myself, really, that's what it was, and how 
upset I was to have to go to meetings. The fact that he was new and didn't know my past, I don't know, maybe that made the difference. I don't know what it was, but he didn't have a job and I didn't have a job and we hung out all the time. Mm. And so we do my step work on one day and that was clear recovery day. I, I went to meetings every day and so did he because he didn't have anything else to do. And I developed this amazing relationship with this guy. And so, um, you know, for the next, oh, gosh, I would have to say it was probably at least a good two to three years. I think it was three years I worked with Pete. And we got all the way to the fourth step uh, in the wow. NA. Yeah, in, in the NA Step Working Guide. Yeah, this was an AA. This is, this is NA Step Working Guide. And uh, it was daunting, the work. It was like going to college. And uh, it changed my life, right? Like that was working the steps in NA were so hard, so introspective, so in, so involved. And his expectations, he held, you know, had very high expectations of what, what he needed out of me. And uh, it changed my life. It changed my life in ways that uh, I can't even explain to anyone who hasn't worked the steps. It, there is something what happens when you put pen to paper, you answer the questions, you allow God into your life, you take the suggestions that are given to you, and you watch how your life just unfolds naturally in ways that you never imagined. Wow. And some of the stuff that you just said is like when we were chatting even before uh, we started the podcast, you almost do that same stuff today. Yeah, man. You know, we were, I know you asked me before the podcast and we were kind of talking about how people, uh, there's a dangerous, dangerous part in recovery that happens after five years, uh, from five years to 10 years, um, and even 15, it'd be, I'd say between five and 15 years. Uh, if you're not as active in your recovery as you were when you were early in recovery, then you start to think you got it. You start to disconnect from your fellowship. You start going to less meetings. Uh, you start spending more time, you know, with people that possibly are not in recovery. Um, you spend more time with your family because now you have a family. You spend more time with your business because now you have this thriving business or, or you have this great job that you love. And so, you know, recovery has afforded you these amazing gifts and so now I have to focus on these things so I, I can keep them and maintain them. Um, all along, your disease is doing push-ups, waiting for you to, to slip up. And so complacency sets in. And at some point, you, you even wonder, you know, like, am I really an alcoholic? Am I really an addict? And I've watched that happen with a lot of guys. What I've watched that, that part of their recovery um, start to diminish. Um, and then all of a sudden they get caught in a jackpot and, and next thing you know, they're, they're out using. Um, and also there is this, this, this thing that happens, right? Like the fact that you're in recovery, you're going to meetings, whether you're the sponsor or the sponsee, if you're at a meeting, you're doing service. And so the service element aspect of being in recovery is really at the core of what keeps, keeps us clean and sober. Every time some guy calls me up and says, hey, oh, I need help, or anytime somebody says, hey, oh, just thought I'd check in with you, see how things are going, and these are all guys that I'm talking about that are in recovery, right? And you maintain those relationships, 
and me, I'm doing podcasts like this, discussing recovery uh, every week. Uh, I'm editing those podcasts every week. Uh, I'm in the Facebook group talking to people who are struggling recovery, uh, and 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 I'm a, I'm helping them, you know, get through it. I'm also dealing with now the group has grown so big. We have now six admins to help me manage the Facebook private group, and we have a private chat that we talk on every single day. Inadvertently, without any effort whatsoever, I am immersed in recovery every. And plus, I'm a recovery. I'm a 12 steps recovery counselor here at Costa Rica Recovery. So like much like yourself, when I'm having a one-on-one with one of the patients, that's recovery I'm discussing. That's allowing God into the mix. Every time I'm teaching a class, right? I'm always yes. bringing HP into the mix and here's a bunch of people that I'm connected with. So I inadvertently ebb and flow through life connected to recovery and my higher power every single day. Every single day. And so do I take it for granted? Not at the moment because I don't even have to think about it. I, I show up every day in recovery mode, right? Um, and so, so for right now, it's a piece of cake. But if I have a full-time job that's not in recovery, if I'm missing meetings, if I'm spending, if I've got two kids now and a wife and they're expecting me home at a certain time for dinner and, you know, full of activities on the weekend, then if I don't set clear limits and boundaries in my life, which some people do not, they may be able to do it at work, but they don't do it in their home life. If you don't take time for self-care, if you don't take time to connect with spirit in the morning, if you don't have a morning routine, if you don't have regular meetings to go to, if you are not giving back what was freely given to you, then, man, you are walking around just at any given moment, you're going to be sitting in front of a drink and you're going to sit there for a while and contemplate. I just I absolutely love this, Omar. I mean, this is like a real value bomb from the sense that like people have like five, six, seven years sober and the people around them that aren't in recovery will oftentimes look at them and say, oh, they got it licked. They got it. And then they can slowly slip into these old habits of like leaving their life, sort of take control of them and their recovery go down in priority. And it gradually just sort of like waits and waits and waits to the right moment. And then the tide turns. And then, of course, everybody freaks out and says, how did this happen? That's always Um, the question. Oh, my God. But he had 14 years. How did it happen? Right. (laughs) And Pay attention to what was going on over the last, like, two years, and there's your answer. Yeah. Well, let me ask you a question. What was the last meeting you went to? Uh, and uh, what step are you working on with one of your sponsees? Uh, you know, <laughs> and when was the last time you talked to your sponsor? Uh, right? It's, it, they're all pretty the, – the relapse happens way before the actual drug or drink gets picked up, and there is this complacency, and there is this – I, I don't typically use this phrase. One of the guys that's very hardcore, old school NA guy, he always says to the guys that, that stop going to meetings, they call them NA thieves, right? You're, you're, you're a fucking NA thief. You, you know, you're greasier than a gas station mop. You got yours, and now you're living your life, you know? Um, 
and and as crude as that is, um, you know, to a certain degree, that's what it's what you did, and that's what we do. You know, uh, addicts have this ability to just consume. That's what we do. We consume. We use people, places, and things. All right, to fill that that empty void that we have inside of us that can only be filled with spirituality um, and the fulfillment that comes with helping others. So when you start stuffing that with money and and the things that you think are supposed to be your family, well, how can I not be with my family, right? Like that's that's super positive. I'm I'm there. I'm with my kids. I'm a good dad, you know that kind of a thing, right? And if you're able to figure it out by being a great father then awesome. You know, that's, you're doing service. You're raising amazing kids. But man, I, I, I have learned in, in my years that when you step away from meetings, it's tough to be a good anything, a good yeah. dad, a good husband, a good friend, a good employee. After a while, you just become this irritable, restless, discontent asshole. You know, uh, you start pushing people away from you. All right. And, uh, you find yourself alone, which is where the disease wants you. And next thing you know, you're back out there. So the key to all of this, the key to all of this is connection, right? For us, our lifeblood, our insulin, so to speak, is connection. And it's two types of connection. Connection with spirit, connection with fellowship. That's it. That's what you got to do. It's the only thing you got to do. And you don't have to even sweat it. But if you're half-assing it, if you're showing up to meetings just because you have to go to meetings and you know, somehow you've let your sponsor kind of like, I'm, no, I'm one of those guys that no longer has a sponsor that goes to meetings. Like, oh, who's your sponsor? Oh, yeah, you know, you know I got like 10 years now. I don't have a sponsor anymore, right? You know that guy is already like, I'm there just like I was court-ordered, right? I know mm-hmm. somewhere deep down yeah. inside I should be at these meetings, so I go every Tuesday, Right. Or at least I go every Saturday to the men's meeting at the church. You know, at least I do that once a month. Right. Um, And that's it. And I get in right at the bell and I leave right at the bell and I'm not part of the community. And I'm certainly not connecting with my higher power. Um, That's going to get old fast. Yeah. And the the drift has already started. Well, if I could ask a, a question real quick. What what do you what would you say like if there's somebody listening out there maybe they followed I mean your your story is so dynamic and actually I mean the ups and downs and kind of what you went through and having like lived it seen it done it and then came out the other side what if a person's like in the early 20s kind of following a similar path as you maybe 21 22 and they happen to stumble upon or listen to this podcast, what would you want to say to them? Well, that's, that's a beautiful question. And that's why at the end of every one of my podcast episodes, I ask five questions. And those questions are for the newcomer. So I ask my guests to answer five questions for the newcomers that all revolve around those questions that if somebody's listening to one of my episodes for the very first time, they're going to hear what was preventing that person from accepting the fact that they were an addict or an alcoholic, right? What was preventing you from connecting with recovery or why did you reject 
uh, uh, recovery, you know, in the beginning, what took you so long to find your way into the rooms? Right. Um, so there's that, you know, that discussion about like, you know, why didn't I want to come to meetings? Well, you know, I didn't think I had a problem. You know, um, I didn't consider myself a drug addict. I was in complete denial about the fact that I was using or, or that this was actually a problem. I had no idea, you know, about recovery meetings or I didn't want to, I didn't want my friends to know, you know, I thought the rest of my life was just going to suck. Right. So these are the possible answers that come up. Right. You know, which is, you know, the answers to, you know, what was preventing you from getting or staying clean when you first got introduced to recovery. And then the second question is, when did you have that aha moment in recovery, right? When you finally, you know, came to the belief that you were powerless over drugs and alcohol, but for the first time had developed the hope that you could recover. And that gives that insight aha moment, you know, to the guy who's listening and going, well, you know, it was right at this pivotal moment when, like for me, I woke up and I remembered that the 10 months ago, the counselor had told me that I was a drug addict and I should go to one of those meetings. And I got up and I got dressed and I went. Right? These are like examples of things that happen in people's lives, but because they've never talked to anybody about it and because they've never had an opportunity to discuss it, they think that they're alone. They think that they're the only person who's experienced these things this resistance to change or this stigma behind addiction, right? And so they listen to it. So in every single episode, you hear about what people have gone through and how they made the decision to give it a chance anyway, to go to that first meeting and what that meeting did for them. And then at the end of the, at the, of the pot, at the, actually at the beginning of the podcast, I always plug the Facebook private group. Right. Where it's like, hey, if you guys, if you're not interested to go to meetings or if you're afraid to go to meetings or if you're not comfortable, you know, with the idea that maybe you're an addict, you know, join us in the private Facebook group. It's completely private. No, none of your friends could see you in it. Right. And there you can you can even just be a stalker. You can join the Facebook private group and just be one of those ones that's just reviewing all the posts and you'll see that there's nobody in there picking up on anybody or creating drama or talking about getting high, right? It's a place where you talk about recovery and the challenges that people face in an environment that you're doing right from home, in the privacy of your own home. And from there, you can decide whether you want to interject or not. And usually in there, I've watched, I can't tell you how many people that have been in there and they said, I haven't commented in a while, or I've never commented in here, but I just wanted you guys to know that because of this group and because of what I've heard in the podcasts, I finally went to my first meeting, and it wasn't so bad, right? Mm-hmm. And then all these people are like, oh, dude, that's awesome, good for you, that kind of a thing. If you're not interested in positive, supportive, loving, nurturing, caring people, do not go to the Facebook private group the share podcast private group because there's only loving, caring, positive, nurturing people in there that want to help you along the way. All right. There's no negativity. There's no soapboxing. There's no preaching. There's no, none of that. Right. It's a place. uh, That's the thing that I want people to know that if you're, if you need a resource, start listening to the share podcast. There are amazing stories just like you and me, regular people. That's it. It's not superstars, even though I'd love to have Robert Downey Jr. on my show. He is my ideal guest. 
<laughs> one day that will happen. Robert <laughs> Downey, if you can hear this, I want you on the show, right? Oh my God, how awesome that would be. But other than that, <laughs> you're, it's your neighbor, it's your buddy down the street. It's it's the it's the guy at the gas station. It's the guy at the grocery store, right? That got clean one day at a time. Managed to put some clean time together. Is living a f- amazing life, and they share their story of recovery. And it's helping thousands of people. Wow, wow, what a story! Um, what advice? Definitely, you got to check out these podcasts, the Share Podcast. There's the, the stuff I sampled has been awesome. Um, just give it a just give it a listen. And uh, do you have any any favorite episodes? Absolutely. Oh, absolutely. As a matter of fact, if you go to www.thesharepodcast.com and share is spelled S-H-A-I-R, which stands for Sharing Helps Addicts in Recovery, there is a button at the top of the page and it says Favorite Episodes. These are, these are not only my favorite episodes, but they're the listeners' favorite episodes right, that have, like, the most amount of downloads. Uh, number one is uh, Mike Lindsay from Crystal Meth to Comedy. It's a whopper of a story. Uh, Sam Heron, Street, Frag- Street Life Fragments, episode 114. Knocking on Heaven's Door, Gabriela Campagna, episode 92. And one that was, like, for the longest time was a s- just... And it's still in the top 10. Dope Sick, Cold Chance, Heroin Rock Star Story. Amazing, amazing story. One of my favorites still, uh, episode 47. Uh, she's also, all of these people that I just mentioned, Cole, Gabby, Mike, Sam, are all in the Facebook private group. If you listen to their episodes, you can find them in that private group. We're all family. We're all together. That's what happens. You know, we connect and now we're going to be connected for life as long as none of us go back out and bang dope or smoke crack. <laughs> I love that. I love that, man. I love that. So definitely check it out. I just want to thank you, Omar. I mean, you've seen it, done it, came out the other side, and you're giving back, man. You're taking care of yourself, and you're giving back and paying it forward. So with that, man, we salute you. Thank you, Ted, man. It's been Awesome. Um, and again, for the listeners, um, I still have my wife. I have a little Brussels Griffin named Rumi that is like our little son. I have a 14-year-old daughter that I share the responsibilities with my ex-wife. Um, and, and that is a priority in my life as well. So I spend time with my family. The weekends are for them, uh, for my daughter, for my wife, for my mom, for my family. Um, so I do lead a very balanced and dynamic life, but always, always putting recovery at the forefront because recovery is the reason why I have all those amazing relationships. Wow. Thank you so much. Oh, it's an honor and a privilege to be here, Ted. (laughs) Hey there, Recovery Nation. Producer John here again. Thank you once again to Omar for joining us today. Make sure to visit his site, thesharepodcast.com. If you liked today's episode, you can subscribe, leave a review, and listen to past episodes on iTunes. And visit fullpotentialnow.org for your free TED tools, including where to find a rehab center near you. This episode featured music by Pat Reinholtz and me, John Procruzzi. Thanks for listening. <laughs>